This was the moment when it really started to sink in that this place was potentially a cult. Because you have these two young people, a man and a woman, doing the most bizarre movements that you have ever seen. It just looks like you're watching an outtake from The Exorcist. And I was a little bit worried about what exactly have I gotten myself into this time. Getting Discomfortable with Silence I recently finished a three-day silent meditation retreat in a sleepy, hippie town on the coast of Oaxaca called Mazunte. I had just finished the week of volunteering that I spoke about in last week's episode on fear, and I traveled to Mazunte as a kind of afterthought. I had done some researching looking for retreat centers near the volunteering area, and I found the Radaya Yoga Center. I didn't know anything about them. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I'm interested in meditation, and they offered a silent retreat that kind of fit right after my volunteering thing. So it just seemed like the perfect thing to try. I've never done a silent meditation retreat before, but I have been sort of casually learning to meditate over the last two years using apps like Headspace and Calm. But usually I would meditate for like 10 minutes a day, maybe. I think the longest I ever meditated for before this retreat was once when I meditated for half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. And actually, that was probably the most interesting experience that I've had with meditation. I just found some YouTube video and listened and meditated. And then when it ended, I just didn't feel like stopping. I was kind of staring. You know when you're kind of lost in thought, but then you you stare off at something and your thinking ends and your brain is just blank, but you're kind of like frozen like a deer in headlights. You're just sort of staring at something, not thinking. That's what this 30 to 45 minute meditation was like. But when it ended, what was fascinating was that everything felt really unusual. There was an incredible sense of calm and focus, which you would expect from meditating. But there was also like a heightened sense of color and sensation, like sounds sounded more intense and colors looked more vivid. And every sensation that I felt just seemed heightened somehow after this meditation. And it almost felt like I was high on weed or something. Like it it was a slightly elevated mind state. And I went out after the meditation. I remember going to a restaurant, a sushi restaurant, and just eating by myself and just basically sitting there and smiling the whole meal, just in wonderment at how beautiful and vivid and interesting everything looked. And then I went home and I went to bed. And the next day I woke up feeling just totally normal again. But it was the most interesting meditation experience I had ever had. That is until I did this three-day silent meditation retreat. It was a really fascinating and surprisingly profound experience. I didn't have any expectations, so that helps. But it was definitely one of the most sort of spiritual, hippie, transcendent experiences that I've had when I was not on ayahuasca. I arrived in Mazunte 
the day before the retreat actually started. And that afternoon at this quite beautiful retreat center perched on a small hill with a nice view down on the rocky ocean and beach below, they had what was called an orientation session. But this orientation session ended up lasting like four to five hours. So we all filed into the main meditation hall and there had to be like I don't know, close to 50 people, most of whom were quite young and attractive. And some of the staff from the center sort of took us through all of the rules and protocols and what to expect during this retreat. It's quite elaborate, actually. Before I arrived, they emailed me a 58-page booklet, a PDF, that had pages and pages of rules and information about the philosophies behind the Radaya Yoga method. The first thing that happened when I sat down in the meditation hall was that a guy kind of like leaned over and was like, hey man, uh, you're in the wrong section. It turns out that they have split the meditation hall into a female and a male section. And when I was reading in the booklet, the reason they do this is that they are trying to stop people from getting distracted by looking at the rather attractive members of the opposite sex. This, of course, didn't help me at all because I'm gay. So when I moved over to the guy side, I couldn't help but look at all these cute yoga guys. And I was like, oh, this actually might be quite distracting. Some of the other rules were they discouraged people from having sex. They discouraged couples from even sleeping in the same bed. Of course, you were not supposed to talk to anyone. You also weren't even supposed to read anything except the 58-page booklet they sent you. You were allowed to read that. And you weren't supposed to write or listen to music or even look at or use an electronic device at all. You were, however, allowed to keep a written journal. In fact, they highly encouraged it. And that ended up being a really important part of my experience because it really was like an entire weekend devoted to talking about the subjects that I think are fascinating, such as the nature of consciousness, the nature of being, the nature of existence, the nature of reality. And I mean, of course, I wasn't talking about those things. The leaders of the retreat were talking about them and I couldn't say anything. You were allowed to write down little questions on paper and deliver it to the teachers. But aside from that, my notebook was the only way that I could keep track of and express my own thoughts throughout the retreat. And it was just probably the first time that I've spent such a condensed period thinking about the kind of things that I think are fascinating. And so it was sort of like existential summer camp. Finally, after they'd been through all the rules, they called up the founder of the whole retreat center, who goes by the name Sahajananda. I don't know what his like real given name is. I suppose that he's named himself Sahajananda. And he explained the three sort of techniques to get started in Radaya meditation. And the first one is that you're supposed to look for and even kind of elongate the pauses between each breath. They believe that it is within those pauses that you're able to really cultivate a sense of stillness and a kind of connection with your inner true self and quiet your thinking. The second technique is to try to focus your attention on your heart 
or your chest area generally. In fact, throughout the weekend, they kept telling us to focus on the right side of our chest. And in my mind, I mean, I couldn't say anything. I was like, I think they mean the left side because my heart is on the left side. But eventually they explained why it is that they think you should focus on the right-hand side of your chest. And I will explain what that is later. Finally, the last technique is that whenever you find yourself distracted by thoughts or sensations or pain or discomfort, you're supposed to ask yourself, who am I? In fact, throughout the entire retreat, they were constantly asking us to think about, who am I? And it's not like a mantra, like something you're just supposed to say over and over and over again without thinking. They really wanted you to start questioning, Who am I? Who am I really? What is my essence? When I think of AJ, what is that thing that I think of? With that in mind, Sahajananda led us into our first meditation, even though the silent meditation retreat hadn't even started. And I have to admit that when you're in a meditation hall surrounded by 50 people and you've got this sort of imposing Romanian guru in front of you, there's a lot of motivation and pressure and focus to actually meditate. When I sit at home in a chair and meditate, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm restless, I move around a lot, I'm kind of half-assed about it. But when I was sitting right there in front of all these people in this really picturesque environment as literally the sun was going down out the window, I found it very conducive to actually just going completely still and going completely blank. And I had one of the best meditations I had ever done up to that point. My whole body was just sort of like stone and my brain was empty and I felt really good afterwards. I felt really, really calm and really, really focused. And as I looked around, everything did have that kind of hyper-focus and vividness that I had experienced way back when I had that one fluky 45-minute meditation. So it seemed like an auspicious beginning. Of the 50 people there, it's worth noting that most of them were actually at the retreat center to do a 10-day silent meditation retreat. So the 3-day and the 10-day start at the same time. And there was maybe a dozen of us who were doing the 3-day. And though we were all oriented at the same time, we were actually going to be using a smaller meditation hall that was slightly below the big one. And Sahajananda wasn't leading it. It was led by two of his up-and-coming protégés, a young woman named Luna and a young man named Kyle. I should note that all of the staff at Radaya are wearing white, flowy clothing, and everyone has long hair, men and women. And it's a very androgynous environment. And I discovered that along with the actual meditations, we would also be doing a specific brand of Radaya yoga each day. And to kind of give us a sense of what that would be like, two of the younger staff members took us through the seven types of warm-ups that precede every yoga class. And this was the moment when it really started to sink in that this place was potentially a cult. Because you have these two young people, a man and a woman, both with long hair, wearing all white flowy robes, doing the most bizarre movements that you have ever seen. 
they do these series of twitchy head movements that are supposed to like unlock channels of energy or something. But really, it just looks like you're watching an outtake from The Exorcist. Their heads are just like flickering in all these weird directions. And they're not in time with each other. So it looks like they're both having an asynchronized seizure. I really wanted to take my phone out and film it, but I thought that that would be disrespectful. And also, I wasn't supposed to be using electronic devices anymore. But suffice to say, I was a little bit worried about what exactly have I gotten myself into this time. I woke up at the crack of dawn the next day at 5.30 a.m. and I wandered across the street to the yoga center and I went down to the smaller meditation hall where Kyle and Luna and a dozen other people were waiting to begin our silent meditation retreat. And they mentioned that for those of us who were staying off of the retreat center, like I was, that if we were worried about other people coming up and talking to us as we were heading home, that we could buy these small badges that say in Spanish and English, I am in silence. I was kind of worried that I would run into one of the other people at the Airbnb. It was sort of like a shared space, so there were lots of people coming in and out, or that someone on the street would talk to me. And But actually, only once in the whole weekend did somebody on the street say, hola, and I had to ignore them. I did not, however, buy one of the I am in silence badges, even though I was kind of tempted to do so just as a souvenir. Another interesting thing we learned was that our meditations would be monitored. There was a young blonde woman who was a sort of up-and-coming teacher, and she would sit with us as we were meditating and watch us to make sure that we were doing it correctly. And if we weren't, or if we were breaking some kind of a rule, she would write a note and politely hand it to us. And they warned us that we would probably get a note at some time throughout the weekend. So I was kind of excited to get one. Unfortunately, I never did. Most of the notes that are handed out, they said, are to do with the way that you are sitting during the lecture portion of the weekend. Once every day for an hour or so, one of our leaders, Luna or Kyle, would give a long lecture about the Radaya meditation philosophies. And while you were listening to those lectures, they warned that you would want to lie down. But you were not allowed to do that because if one person lay down, then someone else would lie down. And before you knew it, everyone would be asleep. In fact, apparently falling asleep is a big danger on a silent meditation retreat. So our monitor would always be keeping a lookout to make sure that we were actually awake and that we, were, we weren't nodding off and that we were doing things correctly. I can't remember what our monitor's name was. But it sounded like she was maybe German, and she was the one who would lead us in the mysterious brand of Radaya Yoga each day. The other thing that they warned us was that we weren't supposed to look at other people during the silent meditation retreat. They were trying to mimic the sense of meditating in a cave, which apparently is a thing that people do. For example, the founder of the retreat center, Sahajananda, is said to have meditated for many, many days at a time in random caves in India. And so they are trying to recreate that experience, 
And you're not supposed to look at other people. You're just supposed to be completely clear and focused all the time. And with the ring of a gong, the silence began. One of the first techniques they taught us for our first day of silently meditating at like 7 a.m. was this counting pattern that was said to help us calm our restless mind and get rid of our thoughts and help us become still and focused. And basically the way it worked was that you would count each breath up to seven, and when you got to seven, you would start again. But instead of just counting to seven the second time, you would count in increasing multiples of seven. So you would count one to 14, and then you would go back and count one to 21, and then you would go back and count one to 28, and so on and so forth, until you finally got to 49. They didn't really explain the significance of this, but apparently 49 is a significant number in some philosophies that they subscribe to. Our first meditation of the day was extremely uncomfortable. I was hungry because even though they feed us breakfast, lunch, and dinner throughout the retreat, breakfast doesn't actually happen until 9 a.m., but you start meditating at 7. And I wasn't clever enough to go shopping before the retreat. So once silence started, I wasn't exactly going to go out and like try to buy some food for myself in the morning. So every day I basically had to grin and bear it for two hours of meditation with a rumbly stomach. And the first morning was the worst. I just, I, my body was uncomfortable. My stomach was growling. I just couldn't focus. It was the polar opposite of the intense focus I felt the night before. I tried doing this counting technique, but I discovered that I could never keep track of where I was. And they said, if you forget what number you're on, you have to start again. So I think the like, most I ever got to was maybe 21. And I just had to keep restarting and doing seven and then back to 14 and then back. It was sort of torturous. But each meditation I did that morning got better and better. I think we did three before breakfast, each probably about half an hour long. And the second one, I was really able to start to focus and calm down. And by the third one, it actually felt really nice. And the 30 minutes went by so fast. They prompted us to try to become aware of our own awareness. So it wasn't just a meditation where you're kind of just focused or, or clear or not thinking. It was actually more exploratory. I was kind of moving my focus around in my head and my body, trying to figure out where the source of my own awareness was coming from. And it felt sort of like trying to look at my own face. Like my awareness felt like a finger that was moving around pointing at things, but I didn't know how to turn it around on itself and use that focus to focus on the focus. But it was an interesting exercise, and I started to see that the Radaya meditation method is very different than any other kind of sort of more scientific mindfulness meditation that I have done before. Breakfast and every meal was a kind of bland vegan slop. They specifically didn't include any spices or garlic or ginger or anything like that because it's just supposed to be simple and basic and sustaining. And it actually it was good. I mean, 
To be honest, I have been flirting with the idea of veganism. I mean, I'm not even fully a vegetarian. I'm a flexitarian, as they say, which basically means given the choice, I choose vegetarian food. But if I go to someone's house for dinner or if I go somewhere where there's just like on an airplane where they have no vegetarian meal for me, I will eat meat. However, I'm sort of getting into this kind of hierarchy of eating now where if vegan food is readily available, then that's what I will choose. If not, then I will eat vegetarian, you know, with some dairy or eggs. And if that's not available, fine, I'll have some bacon. After breakfast, we did our first yoga class. We started by doing this weird spastic series of head movements. Fortunately, they instruct you to do it with your eyes closed, so you have no idea how silly you and everyone else looks anyway. In fact, the entire yoga class is supposed to be done with your eyes closed, which makes it difficult to follow along with the teacher. Fortunately, all of the moves are very simple. However, they hold each move for a surprising amount of time. And it actually becomes quite difficult to hold that posture. So the first time we did the class, I did the move shortly, and then I kind of stopped and was like, are we really supposed to continue with this? This seems crazy. Following the yoga, we had our first lecture, where they started to introduce the principles of Radaya meditation. I was only there for three days, so I'm not like an expert in this by any means, and in trying to explain their philosophy, I will almost certainly butcher it, but I will touch on a few of the key things that stood out to me. One is that Radaya Yoga is based on the concept of non-duality. Non-duality, it turns out, is the name for the belief that everything is connected, that everything is one, that everything is the same. This really intrigued me because it's sort of like the micro-ideology I was flirting with in my episode about envy. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend it. I think it's kind of an interesting episode, and it's a great technique to try to overcome envy. And that technique for me is to essentially look at the person you're envious of and say, we're the same. We're all one. The human race is one thing. To basically take those people and make them a part of your psychological in-group instead of your psychological out-group. And by doing so, you get to share in their achievements, similar to the way that you share in the achievements of a soccer player on your favorite soccer team. When they score a goal, you cheer as if you yourself had just scored a goal. That's the kind of non-duality it turns out, is the word, that I was exploring in that episode. However, I didn't include everything in that oneness. It was just humans. In fact, part of the joke of that episode was that if you needed to make all of humanity your in-group, psychologically you needed a benign out-group to root against. And I had decided that that benign out-group should be rocks. Fuck rocks. But in the Radaya non-duality... Everything is one. And literally, they made an example of rocks at one point, claiming that we are just the same, made of the exact same materials as everything, including rocks. So I was amused that I had been playfully maligning this marginalized group, rocks, when really, maybe, I am rocks. And rocks are me. And rocks are you. Sorry, rocks. The other idea that I thought was interesting, which I was never quite able to wrap my head around, 
was the concept that they believe there is a supreme reality. I was like, cool, okay, good. So there's a reality. I like the sounds of that. But to them, that reality is all one thing. And that that one thing, rocks, people, everything, is all consciousness. And once again, they were like, though a rock doesn't appear to be conscious, it is in fact made of consciousness. I never fully understood where they were going with this. Kind of the closest I could get was a kind of solipsism, which is the philosophy that the only thing that really exists is yourself. In that sense, I could see how everything really would be consciousness. Everything that I see is just a a creation of my own consciousness. So I wasn't sure if I was to take from their philosophy that I was the center of the universe and the only person who definitely existed and everything else that I was seeing was just a creation of my consciousness. Or if we were all kind of connected together in a shared consciousness, I mean, I guess that would make sense if they're saying that we are all one, therefore our consciousness is all one. So it's a kind of non-dual solipsism. There is only one person who exists, and it is everyone. And the consciousness of that one person, a.k.a. everyone, is basically creating the universe. Or is it kind of like God's consciousness, like He is the center of the universe, and we are all just part of his imagination and consciousness. It sort of reminded me of that old riddle. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? According to this philosophy, the answer would probably be no, except that everything that exists is consciousness, so the tree would make a sound because the tree itself is consciousness. (laughs) I guess? Essentially, what I was sort of taking from it was that they believed that nothing existed without some kind of observer, but everything was an observer. So once again, it was kind of a riddle of trying to become aware of your awareness. It's like becoming aware of yourself, which I guess is sort of the point for them, that this whole process of meditation is what they call self-inquiry. Meditation is a way to access the supreme reality that is you and everyone else and discover that that is in itself a form of consciousness. I'm not sure that I agree. I mean, I'm not sure that I even understand. But I was intrigued, especially given how powerful a more limited sense of non-duality had been for me in my life in dealing with things like envy. So I was open-minded about it. I was like, okay, let's see where this leads. This method of self-inquiry, they attributed to an Indian guru by the name of Ramana Maharshi. Apparently, he was born in the late 1800s, and at the age of 14, he experienced some kind of profound fear of death that led him to leave his home and run to some holy mountain in India where he lived in the basement of a temple just meditating, not doing anything else. And they actually found his body just like almost lifeless, being eaten by bugs and rats, but it didn't bother him because he was in this like blissed out meditative state. And the monks in this holy site just started feeding him and basically keeping him alive for a few years while he was deep in meditation 
And he eventually came out of that meditative state and started kind of talking to people and telling them what he had discovered. And from what I can piece together, he had discovered that in his chest, sort of on the right-hand side, there was a source of energy that he attributed as his true self. And that that source of energy and his true self was kind of connected to everything. And that his, his consciousness, instead of originating from his brain, actually originated from this heart center. So that is why they are always asking us when we're meditating to focus on that area of our chest because apparently that's where our true self resides. And the question of who am I, they said, is supposed to be breaking down our identity and getting rid of the sense that we are our brain or that we are our body. And though I guess they're saying that we are actually this force in our chest, they were also saying that there should never actually be an answer to the question, who am I? I thought this was actually kind of interesting. From what I could understand, they were essentially saying that the question, who am I, is the most important question you should ask, and it's a question you should constantly be asking. However, it's a question you should never answer. By constantly asking this question of who am I and breaking down your concepts of self, they are trying to push you towards the realization that non-duality is possible and our identity, our self is so much bigger than the I that we think we are. And I'm, I'm kind of open to these ideas. I'm open to the idea that all humans are one, either just as a category, we are all human, or the fact that we are all essentially related. You know, we all stem from the same mother apes who stem from the same mammals. You know, like every living being in our family tree of animals stems back to one cell that somehow came alive a billion years ago. Or you could also see everything as one in the sense that we are all made of the same stuff. We are all made of stardust. We are all made of matter. We're all made of forces of a physical nature. So in a way, it, everything, even rocks, could be argued to be all the same. I think part of their point was that our sense of I, our sense of identity, our sense of separateness, was really just a factor of where we pointed our attention. And that whatever we pointed our attention to on a habitual basis was what we considered to be ourselves. And I think there's definitely some truth to that. Because as we were getting into these longer and longer meditations, it was more and more uncomfortable for your body. And they were saying that when you feel uncomfortable while meditating, physically or doing yoga, ask yourself, who is uncomfortable? Am I uncomfortable? Is my body uncomfortable? Are they the same thing? Are they different? And it really did seem when I was meditating that if I focused my attention on my physical discomfort, that was me. I, AJ, was physically uncomfortable. But if I simply pointed my attention elsewhere, I, AJ, was not uncomfortable. I was something else. And it really did make me wonder, who am I? Am I the pain? Am I the distraction? Am I the thinking? Am I the awareness? Am I the body? I wasn't entirely sure. Well played, Radaya. Well played. By the fifth meditation of the day, 
I was starting to get the hang of it. I felt really, really, really focused and clear. And I was still thinking, but every thought in my head was extremely clear and precise. It was this really nice feeling, like the opposite of multitasking, single tasking. Every thought is one crystallized idea in your head. And then something really weird started to happen. It felt like my body was starting to move and get misaligned. I mean, I was sitting perfectly still, but for some reason it felt like my head, the top of my head was pointing in one direction and my chin was pointing in a different direction. But I was quite certain that I hadn't moved my head at all. And in fact, I actually did kind of wriggle my neck a little bit and it was clear that my head was pointing straight up, but I couldn't really get rid of this sensation that my head was bent. And then it started to feel like my arms were getting twisted. And it was like my right hand was pulled over to the left side of my body and my left hand was pulled over to the right side of my body. But I knew for sure that my hands were on the right side, completely still on my knees. That was the pose I had chosen for this meditation. But I could not get rid of the sensation that my body was all like weirdly twisted, like it felt like I was a Picasso painting, like I was some kind of cubist sculpture. And it was really surreal. It was like the wires in my brain were getting crossed and I couldn't keep track of my body anymore. In fact, the proportions of my body felt all off. Like just the things I was feeling in my right side were on the left and the things I was feeling on my legs felt way lower than where the rest of my body was. It was kind of like I was being pulled apart in space. When the meditation ended, I opened my eyes, and sure enough, everything was exactly where it was supposed to be. And the sensation of being all kind of twisted around didn't immediately leave. That was what was so weird. I looked down at my hands, and sure enough, the right hand was on the right knee, and the left hand was on the left knee. But it still sort of felt that even though I could see that my hand was on the right side, I could sense that weird twisted feeling kind of within it. And it, it did, that twisted feeling did sort of slowly ebb away. Or it was more like the feeling was always there. But once I looked at it with my eyes, I was able to interpret the feeling differently. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, so that's what it feels like when your hand is on the right side of your body. It, it has this feeling. And if you're not sort of paying close attention to that feeling with your eyes, that feeling can mislead you and appear to be somewhere else. I, I mean, I really don't know what happened, but there were a few other times throughout the weekend, especially with my head, where it felt like I was misaligned again, or with my proportions. Like it felt like my knees were way down below where the rest of my body was. Like I had been stretched out. And I don't know what to make of that per se, but it definitely added to this question of like, who am I? Am I like, what is this body and how concrete is it if you can close your eyes and get all mixed up like that? At the very least, it was sort of a fascinating demonstration of the power of the mind. 
You know, I'd like to believe that my body is real. But the mind has the ability to take what's real and completely dissect it. Like our reality, once again, gets filtered into our head through our senses. And our brain is basically reconstructing whatever reality is actually out there. And when you're meditating, you can start to deconstruct it in different ways that don't match your perception of what reality is actually like. Which really does bring into question, what is real? During the seventh and final meditation of the night, I put a concerted effort into focusing on my quote-unquote heart center, on my chest area, slightly to the right, and I really did start to feel something. I don't know if it was the power of suggestion or what, but there was a kind of fluttery feeling in my chest. It felt like what I would describe as butterflies in my stomach, except it wasn't in my stomach, it was in my chest. And in fact, I think when people say, oh, I had butterflies in my stomach, what they're actually referring to is a feeling in their chest. Because when I started to think about it, most of the emotions I feel, when I feel them physically, I feel them very strongly in my chest and often in my face. It's sort of like, you know, anger makes my chest start to like I don't know what the word is, like vibrate or something. Like you just, you feel this, this intensity in your chest when you're angry. And you also feel kind of an intensity in your face. The same with sadness. I feel a kind of intensity in my, in my, in my heart or something. And I feel like I'm going to cry in my face or my face gets all red or, you know, like those seem to be the two areas that emotions really physically hit me at least. And I started to get in touch with that feeling. And it did feel like there was a kind of anxiety or excitement that I could feel in my chest if I really, really tried. And I wasn't sure if I was just like making that emotion happen, but it really did seem like whatever it is in your chest that interacts physically with emotions and causes that feeling in your chest, that butterfly, that you could kind of feel that at any time if you really focused, that there was a sort of neutral, <laughs> I don't want to say energy, but I don't know, like energy or, or something, like something physiological, not, not like, it's not a, didn't really feel spiritual. It just felt like physiologically there was some kind of feeling in my chest that at any given time was there and was sort of akin and related to emotions like excitement, anxiety even, but also kind of like love and joy and maybe even anger. And as I focused on that feeling, that fluttery feeling, it seemed to grow a bit. It seemed to kind of like spread a little bit up my neck and down my torso and into my arms. Like if I really focused on it, it really did seem to amplify somehow. And I was kind of impressed. I was like, this must be what they're talking about. It's almost like they're getting to the physiological root of emotions and, and just feeling that emotional energy and playing with it and making it grow. That was sort of how I was conceptualizing this idea of the heart center, that it was some kind of emotional playground. And I had this kind of perverse thought that having found this emotional center, 
I was like, what should I do with it? And then I was like, well, maybe you should like, <laughs> okay, what I haven't told you is that we did a walking meditation exercise. And in the walking meditation exercise, each step with your left foot was supposed to feel like metaphorically you were kissing the ground. So when I got to the final meditation, the night where I was actually sitting, and in fact, I was sitting in a chair at this point because my legs were so sore from sitting cross-legged all day. So I'm sitting in this chair. I'm kind of amazed to be feeling some emotional feelings in my heart center that are just sort of there, not connected per se with any specific emotions, just like some kind of emotional energy there in my chest. And I thought, inspired probably by the walking meditation I did before, what if I were to kind of metaphorically imagine kissing that emotional center? What would happen? And then I had this sudden thought that I couldn't kiss the emotional center because the emotional center was the kiss. Once again, it was this like folding over on itself thing, this like trying to become aware of awareness or trying to focus on your focus trying to kiss that emotional energy, that emotional energy felt like it was the kiss. It was like trying to kiss yourself, trying to kiss your own lips, trying to see your own face. I was like, man, these Rodaya people are really getting into my head, but it's hard to argue when I'm starting to feel that there really is something to this heart center thing. All the meditation I had ever done was really more about my consciousness and my head. And, you know, you do body scans sometimes on headspace, for example. But no one had ever suggested that I put my attention really intensely on any part of my body. And I was surprised to discover that when you do that to your chest, there really does seem to be something there. I wandered home that night. And as I was getting into bed, I had my first slip up, wherein I said to myself out loud as I pulled the sheets over, okay. And I was like, oh no, can't say that. And that was the end of day one. We'll continue next week with day two. <laughs>